If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 26, especially verses 7 to 26. Before I begin, I do want to thank John MacArthur for his friendship to me and to, for your ministry to me. I came to know Dr. MacArthur during the inerrancy controversy. Uh, as a teenager, I was reading my heroes, MacArthur and Boyce and uh, Sproul uh, at the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. A lot of teenagers were interested in football players and basketball players and baseball players. And my heroes were Sproul and Boyce and MacArthur and the people that were standing for the Bible. And uh, so as I went into my college years and then into my early seminary years, I already knew the name John MacArthur. But while I was at seminary, so many of my past, so, so many of my professors came out of the Bible church world in Texas and California and elsewhere, the, 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 and what we would call the antinomian controversy was going on in those days. And my systematic theology professor pointed me to a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And my homiletics professor pointed me to John MacArthur as an example of expository preaching because in those days, in my circles, uh, even faithful Bible-believing preachers Preaching through Bible books was not the common thing. There was a lot of topical preaching. There was a lot of textual preaching. Uh, there was a lot of storytelling. Uh, but preaching through Bible books was very uncommon. And my, my preaching professor commended to us preaching through the books of the Bible as a part of our ministry. And you were one of the faithful voices that we were pointed to at a Presbyterian seminary in the Midwestern United States in the 1980s. And uh, as I've grown older, I've gotten to know those heroes. And as I testified to you in the video that they showed, one of the things I love about John MacArthur is he is in private what he is before you in public. He's a Christian who believes God's word. And he's been faithful. And uh, John, you, you, you have an amazing way of being gracious and faithful, and you've shown it again today, by the way, my dear brother. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to give attention to what I believe is the most important conversation on the history of worship, uh, on worship in the history of the world. Uh, my topic that has been assigned to me is faithfulness and worship. And I, I think one of the marks of John MacArthur's ministry is because he has unleashed the word one verse at a time it has led to worship. Because what, what are you wanting to do as you preach the Word? You, you want people to know and love the living God. That's what you want to do as you preach the Word. So preaching the Word leads to worship. Uh, our, th those of us who are Presbyterians get that in our shorter catechism. The very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our chief purpose in this life, in this world, is to worship God. The second question is, what is the rule that God has given whereby we may glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is, the word of God is the only rule whereby we are instructed how to worship, to glorify and enjoy God forever. 
And so in the preaching of the Word of God, Dr. MacArthur has led us to worship the God of the Word. And this passage tonight gloriously explains that. And before we even turn to the passage itself, I I want you to see five things which show us as pastors, as shepherds, as elders, as teachers in the church, why concern for our worship and for congregational worship is so important. And the first one is this, brothers, you cannot commend what you do not treasure. You you cannot commend to the world one who you do not treasure supremely. And that means if your chief end isn't to glorify God and enjoy him forever, you cannot commend the one whom they are supposed to glorify and enjoy forever. And so worship is very important for you as a pastor. You you need to approach the Lord's Day with just as much expectancy as you want your people to have as they gather with the people of God under his word. You ought to come into his courts with thanksgiving and praise because you can't commend to them one whom you do not worship and uh, glorify and value supremely. Worship is all about what we value. Worship is about saying, this is the most important thing in the world. He is more important than anything in this world. Nothing in this world is as good as God. And if you do not worship God that way, you cannot commend him to the people of God as they are gathered under the word. Secondly, you cannot proclaim and worship the one true and living God unless you proclaim and worship him as he is. You you can't proclaim the one true and living God unless you proclaim him as he is. Stephen Charnock, who wrote that massive two-volume work on the existence and attributes of God, has this wonderful saying. We cannot honor him as we ought unless we know him as he is. You see what he's saying? You can't worship God unless you know him. Know him not according to the imaginations of your mind, but as he is. And here's the thing. You cannot proclaim and worship the one true and living God unless you proclaim and worship him as he is, and in this passage we learn he is spirit. And he must be known by his own truth, by his own self-revelation, by his word. You can't know him apart from the word. Third, it is vital for you to understand that what you do together as a congregation on the Lord's Day, gathered under the Word of God, is formative. Congregational worship forms disciples, shapes 
disciples, makes disciples. This was the big argument of the Puritans with the court divines in the 17th century. The court divines said, look, England has been Catholic for a long time. Let's just put some Protestant teaching in the sermons and keep worshiping like Catholics because that's what the people are used to. That way, we'll worship like they're used to and we'll slip a little Protestant theology in there and they'll become Protestant. And the Puritans said, you can't make a Protestant with Catholic worship. The only way you can make a Protestant is with Protestant worship. And that means, among other things, word-based Christ-enabled worship. You know, Protestant worship says the only way you come to God is through Christ. And you come not through some ongoing sacrifice or oblation. You come through his finished work. And therefore, the worship must reflect that. That's, That's why there is no ongoing mass and oblation and sacrifice. The work is finished. We come in the name and by the merits of Jesus Christ. And so the whole worship must be founded on the Word of God and explicitly set forth the finished work of Christ, or it's not Protestant worship, and it won't form Protestants. So it's so important for you as a pastor not just to care about what is preached on the Lord's Day, but everything that is done in worship. In our day and time, the big battle is entertainment. We, we think we can preach a sound, substantial sermon in the context of an entertainment and make Protestants. But God is not here for entertainment. God is God. And that means you have to care about everything in the worship service. It's all forming disciples. And if it's entertainment, they will think that the chief end of God is to entertain them. You will say one thing and you will demonstrate another by the service. And guess which message they will believe? They will not believe what you are saying. They will believe what you are doing. Because what what does Jesus say in the Bible? You, You want to be hearers and doers of the Word of God. Those things need to go together. And if they don't, you'll always believe what you do, not what you heard. So it is vital that the whole of what we do together, as we gather to worship the living God, is under His Word because the congregational worship itself is formative. It's making a kind of disciple. And the only question is, are you making a good disciple or a bad disciple, a true disciple or a false disciple? Fourth, there is a theme across the whole of the Scriptures. You find it especially in the prophets when they are speaking against idolatry that you become what you worship. Greg Beal has a book called that. You become what you worship. And it's a study of the prophets of the Old Testament broadside against idolatry. And the the argument of the prophets is this. Don't worship idols. You'll become like them. They're dead. They can't do anything. They can't help you. 
You need to worship the one true and living God because he can answer your prayers. He can watch over you in his providence. He can deliver you. He can save you. But the idols want, and if you worship them, you'll become like them. Dead and dumb and hopeless and helpless. You become what you worship. But there is also another important theme that goes across the Bible, and this is the fifth point I want to bring out to you. It's not just that you become what you worship, it's that you become how you worship. Because very often, how you worship determines who you worship. And this passage gloriously explains why all those things are and are so important. So let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing. And I apologize for doing this over and over again. It keeps coming off. If anybody wants to come help me keep this on so that I don't say something I don't want to say, (laughs) I'd be happy to help. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but your word stands forever. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it. When, therefore, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, therefore, said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts two-part outline, looking especially at verses 7 to 15. Outline, heading number one, who? Second part of the outline, verses 16 to 26, how? 7 to 15, who? 16 to 26, how? It's an amazing story, isn't it? 
Jesus, in fact, does not have to go through Samaria to get where he's going. He has to go there because of the Father's will. Because the Father's seeking worshipers, and he's on a mission. And he gets there at noon, and he meets a woman, a solitary woman. His disciples are not there. And he engages in a conversation that is a little bit unnerving to her. And it begins like this in verse 7, give me a drink. Now watch, watch what happens in verses 7 to 15. It's better than these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> go, go home and rethink your life. This is, a, this is amazing what's going to happen here. Give me a drink, he says. Now, she immediately responds by arguing. <laughs> how, how is it that you, a Jewish male, are asking me, a Samaritan female, to give you a drink of water? I know that this is not the done thing amongst Jewish men. And John, of course, tells you that as an aside, just in case you've missed it. And Jesus says to her, look at this closely in verse 10. After getting this rebuff, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. So he tells you right there that the whole first part of this conversation is about who. Who we ought to value more than anything else. Who we ought to glorify and enjoy forever. Who we ought to worship. So in essentially, in verse 10, he says, you ought to have asked me, give me a drink of water. Now just put that aside for a second, and don't miss this. He says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is inviting her into a prophetic conversation that you will find in Jeremiah chapter 2. Please turn with me there. One of Jeremiah's words to disobedient idolatrous Israel is Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the God of Israel, through Jeremiah, says, who am I? I am the fountain of living waters. What does Jesus say to this woman? If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living waters. Why? Because he is the living water. As he makes clear, just look over in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 35, 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, because he's not just the bread of life, he's the living waters. As the heart longs for water brooks, so our souls long after the living God. And Jesus is saying, if you knew who you were talking to, he is the living waters. He puts before her the first and most important question of all our lives, who do you worship? Please understand, this world is not divided between people who worship and people who don't. Everybody worships. The question is, who do you worship? And Jesus has engaged in a conversation with this Samaritan woman about the most important question of life. Who do you worship? And he has said, I am the living waters. I can give the water of life to you because I am the living waters. Notice what she says in verse 15. Sir, give me this water. Now remember, go back to verse 10. You ought to have said to me, give me this water. Verse 15, give me this water. See what I said? It's better than these are not the droids I'm looking for. (laughs) You ought to ask me, give me this water. She says, give me this water. It's only the first time he does that in this passage. But there's this awkward interlude, isn't there? She still doesn't understand what he's talking about. She's thinking about a water that will quench her thirst and won't require her to go out there in the hot day, in the arid climate. And he says to her, go call your husband, verse 16, and come here. And she says... "Um, I don't um, have um, a husband. And then Jesus puts his finger on her idolatry. Now look, I, I don't know this woman, and you don't either. And I don't know why she was married five times. I do know this. The strictest of the Pharisees allowed for remarriage in the case of the death of the spouse. But they frowned upon remarriage three times or more. So John is already tipping you off that this woman would have been viewed dubiously by her religious contemporaries. But then the coup de grace is and she's living with a man right now. But you can understand in her circumstance that this might be something, a woman vulnerable in her culture, unmarried for the fifth time, needed security. And she found it by 
living with a man. And Pastor Jesus puts his finger right on her false security. Because the big question in life is, who do you worship? Who do you value? Who gives you your security? Who meets your needs? Go bring your husband. I don't have one. Well, you have said that you don't have one. You've had five, and you're living with a man now. Now, the Bible is very funny when you listen to it. And she replies, you must be a prophet. (laughs) And immediately she moves into the main religious argument between Jews and Samaritans. Now, I think what is going on here is she is trying to get this Jew off her back. I I think the, the idea is here, oh boy, he just quit preaching and went to meddling, and I am going to get him off my back. And so I'm going to start an argument, and while he is blah, 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 and on, I'm just going to ease on out of here. (laughs) And she walks right in to the subject that he wants to talk to her about. And this is what dominates verses 16 to 26. How? If Who you ought to worship is God, who is the fountain of living waters. And incidentally, he's standing in front of you, offering you the water of life. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters and drink. You also have to pay attention to how do you worship that who? The question of who and how are tied together. And that happens to be the big problem of the Samaritans. Verse 20, she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So which is it? Since Jeroboam, they had been engaged in unfaithful worship. Worship not according to the word. In fact, the Samaritans had even changed the Pentateuch to fit their unfaithfulness to the Bible. Whereas the Jews worshiped according to the word in Jerusalem, as it had been said in the Torah. His answer is amazing. First of all, notice how this conversation has been very personal and in the singular when she feels threatened. Now, Jesus, you, you, you stop talking about that water of life stuff, and now you're meddling with my life. Then she goes plural. You people say Jerusalem. My people say here. Notice how it goes from singular to plural. But when Jesus starts off his reply, notice what he says, woman, just stop there for a second. You don't read this this way. Woman, this is a respectful address. This is what Jesus addressed his mother as two chapters ago. 
This is exactly how he addressed his mother. I wonder how long it had been since anybody in her village had respectfully addressed her. And here's our Savior, perfect in holiness, talking to an obstinate sinner who is running for the creases and is trying to get out of the way of the word. And he says, woman, if I'm from the South, and we'd say it this way, ma'am. You see what he's doing? He's trying to break down. The, she's throwing up those defenses. He's just, he's a pastor. He's breaking down those. But then he follows her lead. She wants to talk in the plural? Fine. We'll talk in the plural. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, don't miss this phrase, shall you worship the Father. Now you remember, you ought to have asked me for a drink. Look, you shall worship the Father. It's still in the plural. It's still in the plural because she started the plural thing. But the address is woman. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to get you. You're going to worship the Father. And then he explains the how. Look at verse 22. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, here's your problem. Here's your theological problem. Your entire people since really all the way back to Jeroboam, but certainly during the time of the exile in which you mixed with the peoples of this land after the faithful had been taken off into exile, you have worshiped not according to the word. You have not worshiped according to knowledge. We have worshiped according to the word. But, and this completely takes her by surprise, she's not expecting this. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. An hour is coming, you see, he says, when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You'll worship in spirit and in truth. There's, there's a change in the location in which you meet with God. There's a change in the location in which you experience the presence of God. Not in this mountain, not in Jerusalem, somewhere else. And he emphasizes an hour is coming when this is going to happen. And he emphasizes twice that the Father must be worshiped in spirit and truth because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Now, the woman's response is extraordinary. I know that Messiah is coming. Now, this is not typical as far as we know for Samaritans. I mean, the earliest examples I think that scholars tell me of this amongst Samaritan, uh, people of Samaritan descent is like the 16th century, 1,600 years later. So this is extraordinary. She's dialed in to the Messiah, and she recognizes the connection between the coming of the Messiah and what Jesus has said. When he comes, he will declare all things to us. He's going to reveal all these things. He's going to reveal God to us. And then Jesus says it. I am. You're right. I am. I'm talking to you. The Messiah is talking to you. And boom, she believes right there. The word, the living word, who is the living water, speaks the word to her. She believes the word. She worships the word right there. She runs into the village. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Understatement of the millennium. <laughs> see, see what's happened? The Messiah, the word, faith, worship. Now what's the message that Jesus gave her? It's this. If God is spirit... There is only one way that you can worship God who is spirit. And that is how he tells you to. Because otherwise, how do you know how to worship a spirit? I mean, how do you know how to approach a spirit? You can't see a spirit. You don't know where he is. How do you approach a spirit? Answer, however he tells you to. So when, when Jesus says, the Father is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth, and God is spirit, therefore you must worship in spirit and truth, he's not telling you two different things. You know, a lot of times people will come to this passage and say, to worship God, you've got to have heat and light. Spirit and truth, not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying you can only worship God as he is, and he is spirit. And the only way you can worship God who is spirit is how he tells you to, that is his truth, his self-revelation, his word. The only way you can worship him is by his word. And when she gets this, she believes the word. And she worships. She's converted. David Peterson famously said, worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. 
And you see, that truth is spelled out in bold print in this story. You engage with a spirit only on the terms that he proposes. And what are those terms? His word. And in the way that he alone makes possible, no man comes to the Father but by me. This is why your congregational worship must be radically word-based. It must be formed and filled by the word. Because really, what it is, what is it that you want your people to get when they come to worship? I hope the first answer to you get, that you give to that is you want them to get God. And the way for them to get God is to fill that service with the Word. Because that is the only way in which He has revealed Himself to us. That is the way which, those are the terms that He has proposed. And that is why both the structure and the substance, both the form and the content of our congregational worship must be filled with the Word. I want everybody who walks away from your worship service saying, man, there was a lot of Bible in that worship service. (laughs) Everywhere we look, Bible, 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 Bible. They read the Word. They preached the Word. They prayed the Word, they sang the Word, and they saw the Word, the visible Word in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Word of God was everywhere. And of course, what does Paul say? Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of the Word. Why? Because all worship is, is a word-mediated encounter between the Christian and the living God. That's all worship is, a word-mediated encounter between the Christian and the living God. And so you read the word in the word God most directly speaks to his people. Don't, when I visit your church, do not say, I don't have time to read our passage today. This is inspired and inerrant. You are not. (laughs) This is more important than your sermon. Remember when Mark Dever read Psalm 119? (laughs) All 176 verses of it. And you were a little surprised. Only took him 15 minutes, took me 28. But I'm Southern. Read the Scripture. Preach the Scripture. Packer says a sermon is an applicatory declaration in which the Word of God delivers through the people a message to the congregation about God and godliness. Don't you love that definition? Because it emphasizes 
The word of God is not your tool to reach the people of God. You are the word of God's tool to reach the people of God. Because this is not a dead letter. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You are merely its tool to deliver a message to the people of God about God and godliness. Preach the word. That's the only way people can worship God. Pray the word. I want holy hands lifted up in every place, praying, offering supplications with thanksgiving to God. My Father's house is a house of prayer. What is the standard Anglican worship service every Lord's Day morning where they don't serve the Lord's Supper? It's called morning prayers. Because prayer has been at the center of public worship since the Old Testament. Because in prayer, we pray God's word back to him. You always know that you're praying in the will of God when you pray his word back to him. You plead the promises back to God and you teach the people of God how to pray, praying his word back to them. You sing the word. What what? Your people will believe what they sing, not what you preach. So you better make sure that what they sing is consistent with what you're preaching if you're preaching this. Most of them will not sing your sermons on their deathbed. (laughs) But they, they will sing the songs and the hymns and the spiritual songs that you teach them to sing in gathered worship. If you only seek to entertain them, they will have no words in the hour of death. Sing the word. See the word. In the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper, we see the promises of God to us in Christ, which are yea and amen, visibly displayed. In baptism, God says, I pledge to you the promises that I made to Abraham. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 3, is the answer to that promise. And in the Lord's Supper, God says, through Christ you come to me. You sit down, you slide your knees up under my table, and you commune with me by the finished work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're my children. Slide your knees under my table. And let's prepare for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in our worship, if we want to bring people to God, the only way to do that is by the word. Not just in what we preach, but in every aspect of congregational worship. If we want to be faithful to worship, we must worship by the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We don't even know how to come to you apart from your word. But by your word, we may boldly approach the throne of grace. Grant that we would love to worship by your word and we would lead your people in worship by your word 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.